This is Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of the Canadian Electricity Association. Our podcast features discussions about the future of the business of electricity and what the future transformations will mean for electricity companies, regulators, society, and customers. We also spotlight recent news and bring you intel and different voices from our team here at CEA. Our featured discussion on this podcast is with the President and CEO of Ontario's Independent Electricity System Operator, Peter Gregg. But before we get to our discussion, Michael Powell, Government Relations Director here at CEA, joins me once again to talk about recent news that caught his eye. Michael. Hey, how are you? I'm doing great. What have you got for us? Well, let's start with small modular reactors, which are, of course, a thing that we've all been talking about for a long period of time. But in the U.S., the uh, Army's Strategic Capability Office has recently tendered out uh, a request for proposals for designs for SMRs that would fit inside a C-17 so that they could be shipped anywhere and kept for hmm. up to six months. They are looking for something that can do between one and ten megawatts. But the opportunity here would be something that could be literally dropped off by an airplane, power a small base, and then picked up and left with it in a week while not having to rely on supply chains and fuel and all that sort of thing in a, in a hot zone. That's good for the Army, obviously, but the opportunities for the rest of the sector are what this can mean for rural and remote communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that C-17 can get pretty much anywhere, but right. whether it be on a shipping container on a truck could mean a, a real difference for particularly in Canada uh, remote places, but also for mining operations and, and other resource extraction opportunities. So what's driving what's driving the U.S. Army to move into this space? Well, I think they're concerned about logistics and that uh, an army fights on its stomach and, and keep, needs to keep the lights on as well. So particularly in an environment where new technologies on their part rely on easy access to energy, a long tail of diesel making its way there mm-hmm. is, a, is a threat and that is something they want to minimize. Anything else that uh, you stumbled across this yeah, past week? The, uh, in the U.S., the uh, Berkeley Lab recently did a, a study looking at how energy efficiency programs have uh, impacted demand. And basically, the U.S. energy demand has been relatively flat, if not exactly flat, over the past number of years. Mm-hmm. And the lab out of California took a look at this and found that much of that is coming from energy efficiency programs. So even though people are using more devices than ever, that the actual requirement for electricity has remained relatively Stable. So we're growing without growing. Uh, that, I think, matters a whole lot, particularly as we consider what the future requires for new investments. Uh, everyone needs uh, to think about what the, the future means. But if we all have new devices and electric cars, we have to think about where all this power is going to come from. It costs a lot of money, but mm-hmm. often the cheapest megawatt is the one you don't have to produce. Right. Michael, thanks very much for that. Now on to our main event, my discussion with the President and CEO of Ontario's Independent Electricity System Operator, the IESO. Peter, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Francis. Uh, so I wanted to start with um, the, the, the world that we're heading into with more and more uh, people promoting distributed energy resources, um, distributing local distribution, smart grids, and, 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 and all of those uh, uh, changes, uh, and what that might mean for the, the grid in the future from your perspective as somebody who, who operates a, a system. Sure. Uh, we've seen quite a bit of growth in uh, distributed energy resources, or DERs for short, um, in Ontario in the last uh, decade with the Green Energy Act. So, uh, quite a bit of rooftop solar, and we're starting to see more storage technologies come into the grid as well. 
A lot of that has been placed at the distribution level, which actually isn't the purview of the IESO. We're the bulk electricity system reliability coordinator, but we're interested um, to uh, better understand where those resources are um, and how they might impact reliability. Um, because right now we don't have great uh, visibility into it. So we know it's there. We can see it act uh, on the bulk system in terms of um, demand flows, um, but we don't have granular details uh, down into it. And quite frankly, a lot of the uh, distribution utilities don't have granular visibility into these resources as well. So I think a couple perspectives on it. One is, as I said, I'd like to get more visibility into it because I don't want to be duplicating generation resources at the bulk level if they're available at the distribution level. Mm -hmm. That's a waste of money. But also understanding how to better dispatch those resources in the future will aid in reliability for uh, the whole grid, distribution and bulk. So that the concept of a distribution system operator yes. that was in the uh, in the in the Rev in New York, yes. did that that I guess that sort of uh, at least attempts to address that lack of uh, of a function at the distribution level? Yeah, yeah and that, there's been some talk about that in Ontario, very early days, I would say, this whole idea of, of a distribution system operator. There's even been um, uh, talk of, uh, of uh, load-serving entities as well. Mm -hmm. But I think that's something that the distribution utilities are going to have to get their head around, is how to actually operate those resources that exist on their grids mm -hmm. at the distribution level. So is uh, is the, the role of the system operator at your level going to be changing as a result of all of these things that are moving I'd say ahead. that's an interesting um, discussion that I think the industry needs to have. Uh, I wouldn't say that's a decision we have made mm -hmm. and uh, our mandate really does uh, exist at the bulk electricity system level. Um, so the high voltage uh, system level. We have no mandate uh, below that. Um, but it's a conversation that I've started to have with my colleagues in the distribution sector, that we need to figure out those roles and responsibilities. I mm -hmm. think the the function does need to happen. Uh, it's a question of uh, of who actually does it, um, and then who actually is doing that. We need to actually integrate mm -hmm. um, their system with our system to maintain reliability, um, and we need to determine what kind of data do we need to have, what kind of data do they need to have, and then there's the whole other element of um, we run the electricity market in Ontario. But there's the potential for even expanding that market down to the distribution level mm -hmm. so we could actually dispatch those types of DERs or somebody could dispatch those DERs at the distribution level. And how far away would that be in, it's a, in the future? I, I really don't know. Mm -hmm. I'd say the best answer I'd give you is that they're very early discussions um, inside the, uh, the industry in Ontario, just starting to get our heads around it. We have... Um, I chair, actually, a group called uh, ETNO, the Electricity Transformation Network for Ontario. Mm -hmm. It's the former Smart Grid Forum, um, right. and uh, we actually refocused it last year to look at these very issues, uh, to think about how to actually leverage those DERs, maintain reliability, look at market mechanisms to dispatch them, and a big piece of the work we're doing right now, we actually have a meeting this coming week, um, is to really establish the roles and responsibilities of all of the various players in the sector. And you're also in discussion with other system operators. I know you're you're, you're involved in the ISO RTO Council. Yes, sir. So is this a this is is this an active discussion amongst the the sort of the, the system actually, operator? It community? actually isn't. Really? Uh, no, it actually isn't. We've had. Oh. Um, Perhaps one or two discussions. I think California is thinking about it, mm. um, but it hasn't. It really hasn't transformed uh, or, or 
um, become uh, a discussion at that level at this point. No. But that's that's interesting. Is it, is it just because California and Ontario are more on the bleeding edge right I think now? So. You I think, think so? so? Yeah. yeah. Um, and just when we meet, um, it tends to be other uh, areas of focus. This hasn't been uh, a big one for for that group yet. Oh, huh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So with, um, you know, with increased in, uh, distributed energy resources in the future, uh, could you see a world where we're seeing the stranding of transmission assets, generation assets? And I'm not saying specific to Ontario, but, you know, in the North American context, is, is, that, is that a potential future? You know, there's been a lot of discussion about that for years now. There's, you know, remember the phrase, the, you know, the utility death spiral yeah. um, mm-hmm. and the stranding of assets. And we need to, we need to think our way through it um, and we need to do what we can to avoid that. But my thinking has sort of evolved in the last couple of years where I actually think the grid is a major enabler of these new technologies. Mm-hmm. And I, I think... If you if you can imagine that everyone just wants to be an island with no interconnectivity, then I think the risk is that we're going to strand some transmission assets. But does it, do people actually really want? But I don't think island? they want that. Yeah, I think they right. want the reliability of interconnectedness, um, and then there there are commerce opportunities with that too. So there's the actual exchanging of electrons um, through market mechanisms or blockchain or that kind of stuff. So I actually think the grid continues to be extremely relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, and becomes the enabler of this more modern system um, with more distributed resources on it um, and perhaps more um, exchange of those electrons. I think it's, the grid is the real, the real um, enabler, um, the backbone, and I don't think we're going to see that being stranded anytime soon. But we haven't yet figured out how to do rate making in that uh, in that world where customers want to maintain the reliability maintain the connection to the grid but we don't have an ability today to pay for it because right. we're still paying on a kilowatt basis That's right how are we going to get from here to there where's that where's that conversation have to take place I think it needs to take place um, at the highest levels of the industry but also um, with the regulators um, there's been an effort in Ontario a couple of different efforts actually there's been a report that came out just before Christmas around uh, modernization mm-hmm. of uh, the regulator uh, in Ontario. Um, and there's been another report uh, that's been submitted to the government around uh, a modern regulator as well that should be released sometime in the in the next couple of weeks. But I think it's seeking to address some of those issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, how do we change the paradigm around regulation? And how do we ensure that regulator is aware of what the change that's happening in our sector and preparing for it? And that's a conversation, as you say, it's taking place in Ontario, but it's taking place elsewhere, everywhere. Um, I mean, that's been the driver of, you know, I I mentioned uh, Rev in New York and and quite a few other initiatives. Do you see any of those initiatives being further ahead? Should we be keeping our eye on what's happening in New York or what's happening in Hawaii or California or Europe? Which, Which are the ones that you think are the most instructive? It's a, that's a great question. And I'm not, I think we need to be aware of all of them, um, but I think there are innovative uh, approaches in multiple jurisdictions, but we can't just pretend to adopt somebody else's. Um, there's always going to be some uniqueness to mm-hmm. the jurisdiction. Right. Um, and so I think being aware of what's happening, having a dialogue with those other regulators, um, and uh, 
you know, pick some best practices, but I don't think there's a, a single jurisdiction that we should just emulate and copy. I think it's be informed um, and then make decisions that are relevant to the Ontario context. The challenge is finding a peer. There isn't there yeah, isn't a true peer to, to, to Ontario anywhere. No, and that's, that's always it's always been a challenge is trying to find something that's you know remarkably relevant to Ontario, but we've got a unique system, unique geography. As every single system is, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Let me shift gears for a moment um, and um, ask you to speculate a little bit about technologies okay. and the future. And so uh, what are the, uh, from uh, from your perspective, what are the what are the future interesting technologies that might come forward? Here, I'll put this out as, a, as, a, as an option. Small modular reactors. Yep. Um, are are they, in, in your view, are they ever going to make it off the drawing board? And I mean, except for you know, uh, uh, the, the U.S. Navy, but, you know, off the drawing board and actually an impl- implementation because there's a lot of talk about SMRs these days. Yeah, there is. And I, I don't, you know, I don't know if it's actually going to make it. I think the determining factor, uh, I think the, the shift has been much more to um, affordability. And I think the technologies that are going to get us there um, are going to be technologies that are uh, the most affordable that mm-hmm. actually translate into lower customer bills. And we're, we've seen that in Ontario where we've um, adopted through policy over the last 10 years more expensive technologies, mm-hmm. the green technologies. Prices have come down over time, but we've got contracts in place that have locked in those prices, and it's resulted in higher electricity bills. And so I think technologies that seek to um, address that issue and make it affordable, so reliable but also affordable, are going to be the ones that make it to market mm-hmm. um, quickest. So I won't speculate and pick sort of a winning technology, but I'd also add, I think the technology that I'm most interested in right now isn't a specific generation technology, but it's how do we actually leverage, monetize, capture the value of all the data we've got. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. And that's an area that we're just starting to uh, explore at the ISO. We have uh, what's called the smart metering entity. It's mm-hmm. a part of our organization. So we have the data from every smart meter across Ontario. We have system data inside our control room. Um, we have five interconnections in Ontario. We're connected to the largest uh, integrated machine in the world, the mm-hmm. Eastern Interconnect. And that, that all comes with huge, vast amounts of data. And I think technology has changed so dramatically that uh, we can actually leverage that data through mm-hmm. AI, through machine learning. Um, and the question we're asking ourselves now is how do we actually take that data, leverage it, monetize it, um, drive value for it? it? And it's not value for us. Mm-hmm. It's value for the ratepayer. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's their data. And so how do we use that to actually benefit them? And that, will, that I think, Getting that right and understanding the data a little better will also aid in the development of new technologies. Well, and this relates to a, a discussion, previous discussion that we've had outside of this podcast um, about what are the things that are going to help us meet Canada's climate change commitments, yeah. for example. Yes. And uh, the focus has always been on, you know, what are the hard assets? Yeah. But, it, you know, increasingly, as we've been talking about, some of the things that are that may make a difference in the future are not necessarily traditional what one would traditionally think of as hard assets but ip uh, intellectual property uh, ai the use of the data which yeah. is not a hard asset that's right it's an interesting world that we're heading into how far away do you think that is when we'll be able to actually uh, as you say you know, make use of and, and monetize that data to to a, a significant extent i think it's a question that hasn't been answered yet because yeah. we're just kicking off this uh, data strategy. 
Um, but there are there are other um, entities, perhaps not in the electricity sector, that we've studied. So there's a great uh, the Municipal Property Tax Assessment Corporation, uh, MPAC. They've actually had a data strategy for about five years. Um, and so they've been taking that, um, that uh, assessment data um, and making it available for mm-hmm. a price. Uh, and they've, they've used that to actually offset their operating cost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and they think they've just scratched the surface, and that's valuable data. But I think our, our data, which is actually looking at the use of electricity from minute to minute at thousands of locations across the province, it just seems to me it's probably more valuable data. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, I, d- I can't give you a time when we think we're actually going to monetize it, but I would say not too distant future, the next uh, three to five years probably. Yeah. And who's going to monetize it? Who, who? That's a great question. Who owns the data? So this is the regulatory uh, yeah. discussion that uh, we need to have. So the Ontario Energy Board in Ontario a few years ago um, had an initiative where they wanted to uh, give third-party access to this data. Mm-hmm. So we've been working with the, the um, stakeholders in the industry and with the regulator on making the data available. But when we looked at that, we said, mm, there's such, such value to that. We just don't want to give it away mm-hmm. um, because there is value to the ratepayer. So our view, it's, not, it's, an, it's a question the regulator hasn't answered yet, but my own view on it is that that data actually belongs to the people who use the uh, service, the electricity, um, in, in their homes and in their businesses, and they're the ones who should benefit from it. So it belongs to the rate payer. I believe it belongs to the rate payer. And I think that's where the regulator will ultimately go, right. but a decision hasn't been made. So so I can, I can see it as being, you know, in our context, one of the things I'd like to do um, is if we could offset our operating cost by monetizing mm. that data because mm-hmm. rate periods ultimately pay for our operating yeah, costs. Yeah. So if that's an approach to actually offset our operating costs, that's a net benefit to the, to the rate period. Interesting. Switch gears now. Okay. I have to, have to talk about cybersecurity sure, just because your, your, your company has been uh, one of the, uh, you know, one of the, the leaders in this field for the last, uh, the last couple of years. Yeah. Um, you know, you're, you're, you're leading a, a pilot project with the security and intelligence community in Canada. Um, and, uh, yours is, is one of the companies that we often point to as you know progressive and creative in its approach and innovative. How worried are you about the laggards? It's you know we're only as strong as our weakest yeah. link. How, how how big a concern is that? Given that you know you guys are out front, yeah. but you're doing this on behalf of uh, Ontario as a whole. Yeah. Uh, and so laggards in Ontario and laggards into the systems that you're connected to. How yeah. big a concern? What I'm, do we I'm do about concerned. it? I don't think. We as a sector have begun to take cybersecurity as seriously as we need to. And I know if I had a lot of my colleagues in the room, they'd probably get mad at me for saying that. And they'd, they'd, they'd point to all of the things they're doing mm-hmm. to be cybersecure. But I think it's, a, it's too much of a, a diffuse um, um, effort. It's not coordinated enough. Right. Um, and that's actually a role that we just got this past year. So we actually had our license amended mm-hmm. so that we actually share best practices, try to get information quickly into the hands of our colleagues in the sector. That's generators, transmitters, distributors. Um, and uh, that's where we're focused is we're working on playbooks, trying to educate the, uh, the uh, industry around where, what the risks are, what the best practices are, and get that level of knowledge and... Um, and awareness up 
but I'm still concerned that um, it hasn't been taken seriously enough yet. And I'll give you a great example. We, I know you've been to it. We hold an annual executive cyber mm-hmm. uh, event every year. Well, annual means every year. Um, but um, And we put out a lot of invitations to that. And the last two years, I've really tried to make that more of a CEO-focused mm-hmm. event because I think cybersecurity is a board-level, CEO-level risk to an organization. Um, but I continue to get, mostly, and there's no offense to them, but it becomes more of an IT-centric mm-hmm. room right? and an IT-centric discussion rather than being thought of as a key strategic business risk, which mm-hmm. I think it is. Mm-hmm. And I think that has to change. Um, so I'm hopeful that um, organizations will start to treat this as much more of a strategic risk at the CEO and at the board level. Uh, I think that's a necessary step to actually, uh, back to your question, um, make us feel better about the effort that mm-hmm. we're actually doing something to uh, to manage or mitigate that risk. So you're, uh, because of the, uh, the amendment to your license, you have um, authority to, to act in, in this way in Ontario. How concerned are you outside of Ontario? Um, at the bulk level, so we, we interact, obviously, with NERC. Mm-hmm. Um, we interact with our, our colleagues at the ISO RTO Council. And I think at the bulk level, there's much more uh, focus on it. Um, and uh, it seems to be um, considered a more strategic risk than perhaps it's happening provincially. Um, what concerns me there, though, and you and I have had many discussions about this, is that um, sort of the nation-to-nation piece of it has been a struggle in terms mm. of sharing information. Yeah. So we have struggled where NERC has a mandate to get actionable intelligence out to the industry so we can act on it. Um, but getting that in a timely fashion, mm-hmm. in a meaningful fashion that we can actually act on it, has been a struggle. Um, and we're having ongoing discussions with NERC, as you know, um, and was led us to actually leverage that relationship you mentioned with uh, the CSE mm-hmm. yep. uh, and the Cyber Center. Um, and uh, we're getting much better um, service, if you want to put it that way, uh, much better access to meaningful data, threat intelligence um, that we can actually act on through those partnerships. Um, so I think where we need to, as an industry, we need to figure out more of that nation-to-nation piece and how we actually share information. Mm-hmm. And then casting your mind forward, um, the threat's evolving. Yeah. Um, and we, we see uh, you know, the, the, the threat assessments all the time, and, yeah. the, and the, the uh, actors uh, are, are becoming more sophisticated. Yes. They're becoming more persistent. Um, we're probably facing a future where um, AI will be playing in yep. in the um, uh, in the attack vectors as well. Uh, so, uh, how do you feel about the future? It doesn't sound it, no. It, starting, it, that, every time I, I go down this track, I uh, start to feel depressed, and yeah. pessimistic about the future because it seems as though the the hill uh, is only getting higher and higher. That's right. Even even though we put more and more effort into it, it just seems that the the task ahead is that much more challenging. And so it does it does worry me. But I think the only way we can really deal with it is more through a coordinated effort. Um, that's industry-wide, um, again, sharing best practices, th- sharing um, threat intelligence, um, and forging those strong partnerships um, at, the, uh, at the federal government level and internationally through NERC. Um, because 
you know, it just doesn't make any sense for us to all do this on our own. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we best uh, create that network where we can share information, um, better prepare ourselves? And the reality is that, you know, as, as we get more sophisticated in managing those threats, as you said, what worries me is that the, the actors on the other side are becoming much more sophisticated in their mm-hmm. approaches to it. So it's something where you can never sort of say, all right, I've got a risk over here. Mm-hmm. I've mitigated it. I feel good about it. Right. You can never, you never, that. you can never say we're no, done. You never say we're done. Yeah. And that's the conversation I have with my board on a regular basis. We never say we're done. Yeah. It's always going to be a bit of a red light on a dashboard. Yeah. Um, but it's uh, important that we keep it front and center and do what we can to, to mitigate it. Great. When we uh, do some of our scenario planning and, and take a look at what the future uh, is going to look like, we, we've got a group within within CEA that uh, that does our, our, our emerging issues work. One of the things that they always come back to um, in in the future is is the unknowns, mm-hmm. and um, you know some game changer in the future is something that we don't know about. It's a black swan. Is there an emerging game changer that you think we should be paying attention to? Um, the one that comes to mind, and I'm not going to focus on, on a technology that's going to change things, but it's, it's in the same area of risks that I worry about, mm-hmm. um, and it's related to climate change, um, and it's extreme, more extreme weather events. Um, and thinking about grid reliability and resilience in that context. So I think about cyber as an increased threat to reliability. Mm-hmm. But I also think about extreme weather events um, creating um, new risks that we haven't really thought about. And if you think about it, what's what's been happening um, close to home or further away from home, California has struggled mightily with extreme weather events. We've now got one of their largest utilities is actually declaring bankruptcy because mm-hmm. of extreme weather events and yep. their role in fires. Um, we had tornadoes here in Ottawa Um Last summer, uh, we're seeing um, extreme temperatures, and I think we've got to start changing our view in terms of um, how that impacts grid reliability. Because it's not the hundred-year storm used to be what we've uh, prepared for, right? But we can't count on that being a hundred-year storm anymore. Yeah. It's going to be much more frequent and probably much more violent than we've uh, prepared for. So we're turning our minds to that. It's more of a grid resiliency approach to it. And that that has been a discussion with my colleagues at the ISO-RTO Council mm-hmm. um, and at NERC is, um, do we actually need to change standards around uh, preparing the grid for these extreme weather events? So I think that, that could potentially be a game changer. Great. Uh, so final question, um, in the uh, in the morning when you get up and you boot up your computer or turn yes. on your iPad, what are the first sources that you go to for information? What do, yeah. Where do you go to first just to, to figure out what's happening in, in your world yep. and in the world of your company? There are a couple. Um, I'm actually a, a huge Twitter fan. Um, and the reason, one of the things I like about Twitter, I almost never tweet, but oh. I uh, consume an awful lot mm-hmm. because news sources, I follow any and every news source um, from local CBC to CNN to New York Times to Washington Post to all of these things that I just a bit of a news junkie. And mm-hmm. that's one of the first things I do in the morning is just uh, scroll through my Twitter feed to see what's happening in the world. Um, and we've also got a great team uh, at the ISO who does uh, very early morning news clippings as well. So they're curating. Yeah, they're curating daily, their own daily stuff. Curating and that's, yeah. that's early in my list as mm-hmm. well. 
I always get an email from a fellow by the name of John Canella, um, who's uh, every morning around 6 or 6.30, he's sending me the, the clippings. Um, and then I subscribe to uh, various sources of info that comes from the CEA, that comes from the Electricity Distributors Association, mm-hmm. um, other associations uh, across Ontario. Uh, there's a, a document called the RTO Insider mm-hmm. um, that I also uh, I subscribe well, yeah. to, and uh, just to try to get a, a you know a balanced view of what's happening closer to home and a little further away from home as well. Great, Peter. Thank you for taking the time to participate in this podcast. Thanks very much, Francis. My name is Sharazad Simab, and I lead the climate change and clean energy files here at CEA. It's now more important than ever uh, to ensure that our infrastructure in Canada is resilient and capable of withstanding changing weather patterns. Climate change has in recent times more evidently been bringing real challenges to Canadian electricity companies in the form of more frequent and uh, more severe weather events. And so it's now more important than ever of ensuring our infrastructure is resilient and capable of withstanding the changing weather patterns. To support members, Canadian Electricity Association has embarked on a three-year project with support from Natural Resources Canada to develop subsector-specific climate change adaptation planning guidelines for the sector. And uh, the overall initiative has the support of CEA's Board Committee on Sustainability, which set an ambitious target of uh, each CEA member developing their own climate adaptation plans by 2020. To provide the training and support needed to achieve this, a series of workshops will also be held across Canada, um, led by top leaders in the climate adaptation field, to provide hands-on training and support to members to not only understand the overarching guidance document, but also to develop their own regionally and utility-specific guidelines. Climate mitigation is important, but it's only half of the equation. The reality is that human-induced climate change is here and it's happening now, and we need to adapt our infrastructure to be resilient against changing weather patterns. In the last few years, we've seen record heat waves, floods, and other extreme weather events that we won't always be prepared for as uh, those records continue to be broken. That's why it's so important for all sectors to start considering how to be more resilient to more extreme weather events and why I feel um, so proud of Canada's electricity sector, which in a lot of ways is the lifeblood of uh, the Canadian economy, to have already started taking measures towards climate adaptation to ensure that Canadians uh, can continue to have safe and reliable electricity. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Flux Capacitor and invite you to tune in for future discussions. Our next episode will feature a discussion with Jim Robb, the President and CEO of the North American Electric Reliability Corporation. I hope you'll download it and invite you to continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.